Hi, I'm Alicia Abendroth, and this is Tridge Agri Insider, your agri food for thought podcast where we talk about anything and everything agri food supply chain. Brought to you by Tridge. On today's episode of Agri Insider, we are beyond thrilled to welcome Lisa Jack, Professor of Accounting at University of Portsmouth. Ranked as one of the top 50 universities in the UK, it has around 28,000 students across five faculties. Lisa leads the research cluster for Food Cultures in Transition, or Food City, representing nearly 45 researchers in food across all faculties, ranging from accounting and AI to psychology and cultural history. Thank you for joining Agri Insider today, Lisa. We're so excited to have you with us. Uh, you'll be the first professor, especially such a unique professor, to be on the podcast. So you're leaving a bit of a, a mark today with us. Um, and you know, we're we're just excited to hear a bit more about what you do and um, you know the career you've built. It's definitely unique, focusing on accounting and agriculture there's not a lot of professors or even people right who focus on the mm -hmm. kind of uh, accounting and supply chain accounting of this industry so i thought to kind of start let's talk about your background and how you got mm -hmm. involved in agriculture and you know how you've combined that with academia maybe just a kind of overview of of, of what led you to where you are today it's quite an interesting question because I've had a bit of a patchwork career. So I am a professor of accounting and I'm also a qualified accountant. So in fact, after graduating from university, I qualified as an accountant and worked as an auditor for 10 years. Um, I then went into teaching um, because I realized I actually enjoyed the teaching more than the management side of audit. And that eventually led me to Rittle Agricultural College in Essex in the UK, because they were looking for a conventional accountant to teach on some of their business courses. But I got involved in teaching on some of the agriculture courses, land management, horticulture, even agricultural engineering. And whilst I was doing that, I realized that accounting was done rather differently in the agri-food industry to other places. And that led me to doing a PhD in the area. Um, I thought originally that my maths background, I did a degree, believe it or not, in classical Greek and mathematics. I thought my maths background would be suitable for this, but I found the problem was actually a qualitative one, if you like. It was actually a social historic problem. It went all the way back to the world wars in the 20th century and even before then. So what I was interested in was this idea of what's called gross margin accounting in the UK that's also used elsewhere. I'll talk a little bit more about that later as well, but getting deeply involved in that, I realized why the industry operated its accounting in the way it does. And since then, I've actually dug even further because some of the things that have been embedded over the 20th century are at the root of some of the problems we have today. So that was interesting. Um, I think I've always had an interest in food and agriculture. 
I mean, I grew up in a new town in England. That's one of the towns that was built after the Second World War to take people out of the bombed areas of London. And they had very much idea that these were green towns. So they kept the woods and things in place, but there was also a farm in the middle of the town. And in fact, one of my friends from nursery school lived on this farm. Mm. So even though I lived in this very urban environment, I had a friend who lived on a farm 10 minutes away, <laughs> which was strange. Um, and also my school had a farm on its grounds, a very tiny one, but it was there. So although I wasn't deeply involved with that, I think I was always aware. And I'd read, you know, was reasonably widely read as a child. And I, you know, I knew about farming and where food came from. But I think it was being at the agricultural college, I realized there's actually this deep link with the way people talk about counting and use it. Um, and it's at the bottom of some of the ills, as I said, of the industry. So that's probably something we're going to get into anyway. Yes. Um, so yes, that, that was how I ended up in this particular spot. But it was rather a roundabout way because after taking the PhD, I got a research and teaching post and that led to me becoming a professor down here at the University of Portsmouth. Really, really fascinating background. Um, and I and I appreciate the, the anecdote about your childhood mm -hmm. because I think it really highlights how you know, agriculture has really touched most people's lives. And I think, you know, we eat every day, most mm. people three meals a day. This is a very important industry that even if you don't realize you're every single person on this planet is a part mm. of. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's just very interesting that that little thread as a child, you know, has now followed and kind of blue blossomed into this career, amazing career of yours, um, to be honest. So wh what would you say is kind of driving your passion today in, in um, agri supply chain accounting? I, you know, I know you work on quite a few different subtopics within this space, but maybe there's something that really, you know, evokes excitement or, or makes you get up in the morning. I think there's two sides to it. One is just the food side. You know, you can see the problems in the food supply chains at the moment. You can see how fragile it is and has been for a very, very long time. Um, and there's the research part of me just wants to get to the bottom of this because it is, you know, everything in the agriculture and agri-food in the end is some sort of financial transaction is involved there is always a conversation about money and i think wherever you have that it's really intriguing to say well what would happen if we did it differently because we're really trapped into the profit margins and everything else the ways of negotiating and because everybody's working on such narrow margins, it's really difficult to change anything. Because if you're the one that jumps and it doesn't work, that's the business gone very, very quickly. So we're almost trapped um, in theoretical terms, we call it being institutionalized. <laughs> like what that. would it take to deinstitutionalize or change what we're doing? So I actually have this sort of very practical, if you like, curiosity about how the industry 
is tied up with these conversations about money. But I also have a very theoretical interest as well, which is it's about, well, how do you change a system? How do you change something that we're all embedded in? How do we think about it differently? And unless we unravel the money issues underneath that, it's going to be very difficult to see, you know, how could we do a negotiation differently um, so that we get better outcomes and people get paid more fairly along the supply chain? Or can we think even more radically? So I have both a sort of, if you like, pragmatic interest in the industry, but I also have this theoretical interest in what's going on as well. Absolutely. Um, so you touched on the topic of fragility in the supply chain. And I mean, there's a lot to unpack there, but would you say that that is one of your current kind of largest concerns when you look at the industry or, you know, the supply chain as a whole is the mm. just the vulnerability side of it? Is, is that really the number one risk you see looking into the future? I think it's part of it because the vulnerability makes people very reluctant to do anything differently. So <laughs> we saw during COVID um, in many places that supply chains could be resilient, but they were resilient in the sense that you could still fill the shelves, but you weren't necessarily doing it in the most, or shall we say environmentally friendly or fairest way you were just getting food from somewhere to fill the shelves so there is a certain amount of resilience in the system as we found but what that masks is the impacts it has on individual farmers and individual producers across the world um, and the tent problem is that we only see if you like the supermarket shelves and the markets the as consumers you see what your point of contact but um, that apparent resilience and the apparent filled shelves do hide a lot of problems underneath, you know, um, and I think, I think we're going to be coming back to that and it might be easier rather than throwing it all into the same answer to unpack it a bit more. But there are, I mean, quite a lot of the problems in the industry are what they've been for a very long time. It's volatile commodity prices it's um, price negotiations with retailers and manufacturers and catering industry um, where there's a certain amount of what's called commercial income taken in other words effectively a discount from the suppliers to make it competitive um, and the whole industry as we're seeing at the moment is very vulnerable to political change and geopolitics um you know when a conflict arises as is, as we're seeing now in not just in the ukraine but across the world that disrupts food supply um but these are the problems the problems of disease and conflict and weather have always been there i mean you can read back, as I said, I read classical Greek. You can read some of this in the literature from 400 BC, 1000 BC, even earlier if you go back in some cultures. 
So some of the problems haven't changed. I think that the challenges are, I think if I was to pin it down, what I'm looking at at the moment is realising just how much of this is tied up in fuel, how much we've created a supply chain that's oil dependent. Um, it's a huge topic, isn't it, to get your mind around. <laughs> um, I'm trying to pull out, well, okay, so what are these what are these costs? Because I did some work for Sustain, which is a um, non-governmental organisation in the UK that campaigns on behalf of farmers and producers, but also is looking at things like um, sustainable cities. But we broke down the cost of five staple foods. And in fact, if you put together all the costs across the supply chain, and this was a fairly basic calculation, I wouldn't say it was a detailed one, but it was based on publicly available information. But even from there, you can see that 98, 90% of the cost is of any product is in overheads and production. There's very little profit at the end. Nearly all of it goes in overhead at some point. And if you look at that, you're then looking at well, actually, if we take the packaging and we take the refrigeration and we take the storage and the transportation and the fertilizers and anything else that might have gone into it, you're looking at a lot of oil based products. Or in some cases, obviously, trees for paper and things like this. So it's a very resource intensive industry. So how do we tackle that? If that's 98% of the cost, very easy to say the supermarkets or anybody else might be price gouging. But in fact, there's no evidence at that point, at the end point. I wouldn't like to vouch for everything in between. But in fact, the answer is in tackling that overhead. Mm -hmm. It's not tackling who's taking what profit, it's about tackling that overhead. And that's one of the things I'm delving into at the moment. <laughs> come back to me in six months time I might have a bit more of an answer on that one yeah <laughs> well <laughs> it's an on it's on it's ongoing um it really never, is ongoing yes and, and, <laughs> never ending one could say and, and to be fair you touched on it right you are considering system-based change I mean hmm. you're not just considering okay one tunnel vision view of well let me just look hmm. at you know why do retailers take x amount of profit you're saying well that's one part of the the story let's look at the whole picture and then let's think about and like you said quite radically what reinventing the system can look like and I, you know i i talk a lot about this in my circles as well mm. is you know we have a lot of startups out there but they're all trying to revolutionize the system as it is today they mm. take one snapshot view right maybe it's um agri inputs or or just you know precision mm -hmm. farming right and they say how do we make it more efficient more profitable for mm -hmm. farmers and and all this is really important but it overlooks some of these high level issues right the overarching mm -hmm. issues and i think 
you really raise a good point because overarching issues, you said politics, you said um, um, weather, right? But there is the economics behind it. Um, and I think that's a really kind of overlooked high arching issue. And, and I mean, and like you said, we can unpack maybe what system-based change mm -hmm. would look like, um, you know, a little bit as we, mm -hmm. as we go on here, but you raise that point. And I think it's something that I'd really like to drive home to listeners is to kind of take a step back sometimes and view the supply chain as a whole. Um, yeah. yeah, I guess, um, I'd like to also ask you, so before we go into system-based mm. change and, and, and this kind of, you know, some of the articles you've written, you also mentioned something really fascinating just now about kind of as long as mankind's been around, there's been agriculture and you can read about, you know, some of the environmental plagues and, and issues we've mm. had. You having though focused on the um, economics and the and the accounting side of it, is this a new problem to our time, or has this been around as just as long as plagues? And and I mean, have farmers always had the kind of has the supply chain been so unjust financially um, for a long time? Well, there are obviously different forms of agriculture if you go back. I mean, I could refer you to a book written in the fourth century BC by Xenophon called Economia, which has okay. a lot about how you make your farm profitable and how difficult wow. it is to make your farm profitable. Um, but they didn't quite have such a complex system. And what you've also got to think is that for many hundreds of years, it was that people were either farming for themselves um, or they were effectively part of a feudal system. So they were part of the household or the estate or country, depending on where we are. I mean, because we've got evidence in Egypt and ancient Egypt and all over the place and China. And China is very interesting. They had budgetary systems 3000 years before <laughs> BC, you know. Um, so these are not necessarily new problems. Um, I think quite a lot of the problems we have, though, are from, and I, I can't quite put an age, I mean, I've done a reasonable amount of agricultural history as well, which is a sort of sideline. Agricultural accounting history, a very niche area. <laughs> <laughs> Even more niche. <laughs> um, but fascinating. But it's sort of, um, you get more of a market system emerging from the 14th century onwards. So it ceases, when it ceases to be so local, and particularly when we start from Europe, if we look at a European point of view, and I apologize, I, you know, I don't think I can encompass everybody's history in a short talk, but if we just look from a European point of view, we were sending out ships from the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries onwards to find new foods. Now, admittedly, the Vikings have been doing this previously as well. But on the back of that, that's what created the first stock exchanges and first what we call, were then called joint stock companies and we would now call shareholding, shareholder companies. So it's that bit of history when it becomes more of an international trade 
and also throughout and towards the Industrial Revolution, where you have more forms of transport, being able to take food around the country and then to other countries, and we start importing a lot more. Suddenly it becomes tangled up in finances. It gets tangled up with stocks and shares and returns. And I haven't mentioned that yet. Um, I'm an accountant rather than a fin financial person, which is a bit esoteric for some people, but there is a dividing line between academic accounting and academic finance. Even though I'm in a depart school of econo accounting, economics and finance, we are three different research approaches. But it's that finance side and Jennifer Clapp, professor from America, has written brilliantly about this area. And I recommend her book, Food, as a starting point. But it's just how much um, the whole industry has become tied up with commodity pricing, options, um, forwards contracts, um, stocks and shares. Um, the oil companies, the, you know, how, how much has been come tied up with, I'm not going to say just capitalism, I'm going to say it's more about the types of financial markets that capitalism has given us. And I think that's, you know, even more so that's what needs entangling because they're all transactions as well. There's an accounting for them, but there's also this who's funding the industry who's profiting from the industry, but isn't actually producing or selling in the industry. So there's this whole sort of financial framework as well. And I think that's what, you know, some of the problems come are linked with the development of that financial market system from the late 17th century. However, uh, I have to say, when, when I teach this area, I'm actually teaching the area of fraud rather than the area of uh, agriculture. So we <laughs> <laughs> ought to stop at that point. <laughs> no, but... <laughs> That's also when people started ripping each other off a bit more seriously as well. Right, <laughs> right. All... So another one of my interests is in food fraud. We could perhaps talk about that another day. Yeah. But, um, I... Yeah, that, that also goes back time immemorial. I have a feeling we'll, we'll, we maybe might need two podcasts to get through all the different <laughs> topics. Um, Surprise, no, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. And and I think it, it is a really good point. I think that, and you, you have said it beautifully, you know, this turning of the financial economy, mm. financial industry um, really changed the way people can earn money, right? We, we have, it was almost a birth of a new economy and yeah. absolutely we can't and this is you know coming full circle to what you said or what, what we talked about at the beginning is mm. agriculture still enables all of this right and it still enables yeah. this entire um system that we've built it is the backbone of it um mm. however you're right the way the, the system's working today the backbone isn't really what's profiting um it's it's the I also need to be careful with my word choice now. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's a difficult it's one to difficult. say. Yeah. yeah. I think it, it's, it's intertwined, I think is probably a good way of putting it. Um, 
And I think, again, we can't have simplistic answers to systems change because, you know, you need investment as well. You need some form of insurance. So it's about entangling or, or disentangling rather the, the beneficial side of the financial market from the more speculative side of it. Yes. No, I, I, I agree. And, and, and I don't think that we can, like you said, boil anything of, down into, and then that's the world we live in. I, I also talk mm -hmm. about this in some of my circles is reductionism, right? We live mm -hmm. in this society of reductionism and some of these solutions that might exist, unfortunately, won't fit into those, those boxes that we mm -hmm. um, sometimes need to evoke change. So it's an interesting time. I, I wanted to touch on an article that you wrote um, for the conversation titled food prices are still are, excuse me, food prices are rising, but farmers profits are still small. Here's why. Um, I really like that article and I was hoping maybe you could unpack a little bit what you found as you were writing that or as you published that and also what evoked you to to publish that piece. Okay, so what provoked the peace in, at that point in time was that the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak had held a summit at Downing Street um, with members of the food industry and come out with a set of recommendations. And it was touted quite heavily in advance as being about fairness in the food supply chains. That being That was going to be one of the crucial things. But actually, when the report came out from the summit, it turned out the fairness aspect was down to one or two lines, or maybe I'm being a bit unfair, two or three lines. But there were other, it gave the opportunity for the government to say they were investing in the countryside. So there were some good things in there, but they didn't really tackle this question of unfairness. It was left very open. Now, I've obviously written several articles and reports over the years which were on that topic. So I was basically drawing on my previous work to give a sort of why the summit had been welcomed by some in the industry because of this new investment, but why it failed to tackle the question that people wanted, wanted to see tackled. Um, and it's really quite a difficult one. Now, I've recently sent in a policy, a comment, um, because they're looking for evidence for a committee that's actually on fairness in food supply chains. So the government haven't put it to one side. But essentially, quite a lot of the unfairness can be seen in the accounting for the industry and the accounting between supply chain partners. Now, I'll try and explain this verbally. It's a lot easier when you've got a picture you can wave, <laughs> wave around, but I'll try and explain it. So there's some, I'll just pick out two or three things which contribute. They're not the cause, but they contribute to our understanding of how and why the system might be unfair. And the first one is coming back to this point of overheads, which I made earlier. Now, when negotiations take place in the industry, it's quite often on the basis of something called marginal costing. 
Um, in other words, players downstream are quite will negotiate on the basis they'll cover the labour and the production costs, whatever, but they don't particularly want to cover your overheads. So in economic terms, this is a fair enough way of doing it, but you can you only argue on marginal cost if you've covered your overheads. The big question in agriculture is who's paying the overheads? <laughs> How much is it just juggling cash around the system? And I delved into this a bit further. And I looked at the way overheads were accounted for. Now, if you're basically your direct costs or your variable costs are those that go into providing the goods or services and then everything else is an overhead. For supermarkets, that's absolutely everything to do with running a supermarket. So that's 90 to 95% of their costs are classified as direct. And then there's a very small proportion, a few percent classified as overhead. In other words, the running of the head office. But if you're in a manufacturing business, for example, or a grower packer, or you're a farm, you're probably taking a bit more of a traditional approach. And in fact, when you look at farm accounts done in the way that's described and the way that was recommended after the Second World War, it came back to my thesis in the end. After the war, you were 70%, 30%. Now it's about 30% direct cost and 70% overhead. So if you take it at its most extreme, supermarkets are arguing to cover 90% of their cost and they're approaching the farmers to cover 30% of their cost. So it's just in, the, it's in a very, very basic bit of first week accounting or accounting 101, as I believe you would call it in America, um, which is how do you classify your overheads? And I don't think people at different stages of the industry entirely appreciate that everybody's classifying their overheads in a different way. So if you want a very simple reason why there's some unfairness in the negotiations using accounting information, it's because you're not talking about the same thing. And then there were two other points. Um, one was obviously in what's called variable commercial income or suppliers payments or back margin which is how much the suppliers pay the end retailer or person um, in the form of discounts and fees and possibly penalties now the act has been cleaned up a bit on this at one point I think about 10-15 oh, years ago um, you could find about 30 reasons for retailers, caterers and big manufacturers to ask suppliers for payments, but it's been tidied up. That's quite a long story, so I won't go into it now. But it's still true that um, quite a lot of the profit of a retailer and others comes from commercial income. It comes from the suppliers, it doesn't come from consumers. And it's the bargaining point is the that's what keeps things competitive for consumers it's what keeps prices down 
it's not economies of scale on cost because every time you add a new store you're adding more cost into the system it's the bargaining power and that bargaining power is manifested in commercial income or suppliers payments also means you can keep the prof profit margin from consumers right down because you're taking it from suppliers and i think it you know where you can get the information a rather alarming proportion of the net profit of the end companies um, comes from the suppliers not from consumers and i don't think very many people understand that um the final thing is that it's very difficult to get transparent information as it says in the article they got a comment from uh, the british retail consortium he said well we can't be more transparent because it would affect competitiveness and keeping prices down for consumers but even so i think you could be a little bit more transparent than segmenting your information as we would call it between fuel and everything else particularly if you're also selling non-groceries clothing household goods i think you could be a little bit more transparent than that you still would be giving away a lot of information um right yeah so we do have a lack of transparency you might get it within small schemes there's a dairy scheme with one of the retailers in the uk that is more or less open book and more or less fair open book accounting as we would call it both sides being able to see what's going on in that particular negotiation but it's very rare it's not completely transparent the main problem for the farming industry if you people don't mind me saying so is the farming industry is far more transparent than the rest of the supply chain we have benchmarks we have farm surveys we have breakdowns of costs from our fine agricultural universities all of which are fascinating and very useful but it lets everybody else know what the breakdown of costs is that you can't get from the other members of the supply chain and it's that imbalance in the transparency that's part of the unfairness i think and that's what i was getting at in this article yeah and i think playing on that as well there's um you know and i talked to someone recently uh, in a previous episode about the imbalance of risk as well in mm. the supply chain the the mm. farmers carry a disproportionate amount of risk to the retailers and you're bringing another element to that which is you know the element of transparency and financial transparency it's also disproportionate so we keep that that exists a bit in the industry and i think um it's quite interesting i i do want to get your opinion on how much do you think policy should play a role in this i mean we know we already have things like subsidies for farmers um you know which help compensate some of these additional costs that might exist or or even some of the um bad accounting that you pointed out but you know i know the uk has been doing some fascinating work with kind of transparency and you mentioned it um just now as well um some of the recent changes but in your opinion do you think policymakers should hold more power in this scenario should they be evoking more change or is it enough what they're doing currently that's a very interesting question um you know i'm not a policy expert but um 
there's a danger, it depends on the government you have, that you allow make too much room for competition. And you want to avoid creating um, a bureaucratic burden on people. Having said that, what you then tend to end up with is codes of conduct, is then how you enforce those codes of conduct. So the UK has a groceries code of conduct. Um, it's, there have been under the recent Agricultural Act codes of conduct being developed for dairy and pork. And this could be extended. That was one of the things that came out of the food summit at number 10 that I mentioned. But codes of conduct only go so far. Um, so how radical do you get? You History is full of sort of planned agricultural economies that don't quite work either. Mm. Where's the sweet spot between having a totally centralised agricultural system and a totally free market agricultural system? That's a really difficult one is to know where you go. But I think it's about tackling these points of unfairness. And I think you could go as far as changing the regulations. But I'll give you one interesting example, though. France, people quite often say, oh, well, no, you can't sell it below cost, so you can't charge commercial income in France. Well, that was true up to about, and you have to forgive me, it was either 2006 or 2008 when they changed the regulations, and now you can. So, you know, those conversations about suppliers' payments came back in and you could sell at below cost. Now, that's a very crude thing. I think there are different things in place in the French legislation. So I wouldn't take that as a as a description of everything that's going on. But it isn't a description of how just those bits of regulation can change the way negotiations are done um, and effectively change the way the where the profits are coming from in the industry. So I think I would be interested to see and to pursue, well, if we say pursued three of those things, the three, sorry, the three things that I mentioned, the um, overheads, transparency and commercial income, and saw whether there could be regulatory boundaries put in place over those that may actually have quite a widespread effect on the industry. I think even more so, I think, going slightly out of my area of expertise, I think where we do need regulation is in the financial market side. And the European Union has gone into looking at how do you curb particularly some of the derivatives and options that are there in around food and around other goods and services that in the end are very close to being speculative or some would even say bordering on being gambling with the industry so i think that is an area that does need to be looked at you keep talking about and you keep insinuating system level change. Mm. I mean, you mentioned it in this case as well. Um, maybe not putting more policy in place for 
the retailer or even for the farmer because there's already a lot of especially at the farm level and i and i also can't speak too much to retail level i know they they deal with a lot of food safety mandates etc mm. as well but you know there is a lot of regulation that the, that people involved in the food industry need to abide to um but looking at some of those peripheral industries and again that system level thinking i think we keep coming back to that point um and staying on that kind of spirit of of, of high level right um mm. the, the big picture there's a lot of talk at the moment about environmental sustainability. I mean, living in Europe, we can't get enough of how do we combat, you know, environmental climate change um, in the future, right? But me personally, I mean, and and we've spoken a bit about my personal background, you know, mm -hmm. growing up on a farm and, and working on a farm, you know, seeing some of these um, these painful balance sheets at the end of year. I think that the financial sustainability of the agricultural industry is almost equally as important because mm. if a business can't survive financially, then they'll go out of business and then suddenly that food won't exist. And I, you know, we see this happening in Germany. There's a lot of pig farmers that are going insolvent in the next couple of months to years. That could completely change the landscape of what we're going to be eating here in, in Germany. Uh, and this is a pork nation, right? This is a nation built on, on pork. So, you know, we're seeing these massive changes and restructures. And I guess what is your perspective on kind of what I just said about this topic of financial sustainability in agriculture? I think it's crucial because it's linked to everything else I've said as well it's linked to the financial markets it's linked to the negotiations and the supply chain i mean farming has always come through but i think we are seeing more and more that people can't carry on and sometimes these are fifth sixth generations have had the farm you know it's it's a you know, it's sad for that, but also it has this implication. It's not financial sustainability. Well, who then is managing the land and putting in the environmental sustainability into the land? Because there's a lot of where there is funding for farming. It's largely in environmental protection. I think making farming financially sustainable. What I'm interested in is how much it would take, because I have a suspicion that if, say, suppliers' payments in the end were reduced even by a little, by the time you put that into terms of volume, um, it might be sufficient. It's probably the difference between being sustainable and not being sustainable. We're not talking about people becoming wealthy, because a lot of the farming industry is not wealthy. I mean, it's, there's land, but that's another, you know, you could, you know, you only have, you have to stop farming. For asset that. wealth, right. <laughs> You've got asset wealth, but obviously if you sell that land for building, for example, or for something else, it's not creating food either. And I think possibly this ties around again to policy. Um, maybe it's something I didn't think so much about in my last answer to you, but of course it's about to what extent do you encourage imports and exports of food? Um, and to what extent 
are the trade negotiations, trade you know, trade agreements, and the trade law linked in. I mean, as you said, this is a high-level systems change. We have colleagues here at the University of Portsmouth who are interested in, you know, this legal side to the system, and that's, you know, again, a lot of the problems are replicated into law. So that's slightly drifted off the point, but it comes back to that. It's about this balance of imports and exports in a country and to whether the farming and the agriculture in that country become sustainable. Um, and we have seen changes, the changes in the way trade agreements have been written have obviously then had an impact back into farms because it depends on who they can sell the produce to and what they can get for it. We're stuck in a situation where we've got global competition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't have all the answers to that, but some of the questions lie there. You know, yes, we've got to look at the accounting side, but it may, but it may be that there's very little things we can do that actually make quite a significant difference as to whether a country's agriculture is viable or not. Um, and they're probably linked to the finance and to the accounting again, mm -hmm. um, because the law is there to support trade. And I would be really curious, because it's something I've been racking my brain with mm. recently, is you see these policy shifts happening in Europe. You see and hear more and more businesses in Europe that mm. agricultural businesses that need to either reinvent the way they're doing agriculture, meaning mm. completely revolutionize, maybe not even organic is really enough anymore, mm. right? It's like they have to completely re rethink the way they use their land or go out of business, right? And I always think to myself, well, well, what will happen when people still want pork, right? But then there's no more domestic German pork. Will we just start importing more from, I don't know, Brazil, right? Or, or um, Mexico or the United States, right? Like what, what will, how will these international supply chain shifts and shift and is this really more sustainable right um is it more sustainable to be bringing in all this food but then you know for europeans to be living ag free is that a better world i, I and you know and maybe this is me grasping with that concept of mm. you know such radical change but i think change is happening really quickly in the especially since covid yes. Um, and maybe you have some thoughts on it. If you don't, absolutely no worries, because it's, I think, a bit of an untalked about topic at the moment still. Um, I think it's recognized, but, you know, it's a again, it's a very difficult one to disentangle. Um, I quite like the work of Michael Callum in the States as well, when he's talking about the difference between cheap food and affordable food and quite a lot of the policy and quite a lot of the practice is driven by the need for cheap food but in fact if we turned it around and said well it's affordable food that we should be thinking about then and we 
can extend that idea of affordability to being what can we afford for to happen in the environment. Yeah. Then maybe that will lead to a change of mindset saying, well, we have to get the cheapest product in from wherever it comes from. And saying, well, actually, people in this country can afford this food. And then, then you have to think about the policies because quite often the people who can't afford food, it's more to do with their income. And the government has to be tackling that income and the other costs in their life. But at the same time, we have to make sure that people can eat. You know, and that's a difficult one to balance as well. But I think I would agree with that move to say that it's not a conversation about cheap food. It's a conversation about affordable food and sufficient food. Um, however, like everybody else, I'm a bit stuck at that point. How do we get how do we get beyond that point? How do we make sure that people are fed fairly, properly, that everyone is fed? But at the same time, we're not damaging the environment and um, quite frankly, making a lot of people in the, who work in the industry live on low wages. They're just mm -hmm. exacerbating the problem. So I'd love to be able to square the circle, as they say, say, how do you get a fair deal for everybody yeah. in the food supply chain? Um, and I suspect it's linked to the way we think about money and the way we think about affordability as opposed to cheapness. Hmm. I, I'm, I'm going to read that that book. Um, we'll definitely look that up because, yeah, I, I think it's very intertwined and you're making me really, yeah, think as well here what 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 could be done, and and maybe I'll I'll hopefully have some epiphany mm. tonight as I as, <laughs> as I cook my dinner, right? And I look over and yeah. I look over the the fresh vegetables I'm chopping, um, kind of going toward a bit more positivity or even mm -hmm. um, you know constructiveness, and and we have touched on this right throughout the entire mm. conversation today is things that can be done, aspects to assess for positive change. Mm -hmm. But maybe you have some concrete suggestions, um, some easy things. And now I'm going back to what I said, you know, maybe isn't the answer reductionism, right? But mm -hmm. um, maybe there's a couple takeaways we can give the audience of maybe even, you know, ways to change or you, it's up to you. Maybe things that farmers can do to, to improve um, from an accounting perspective or some things that consumers can do to, to evoke change. Uh, maybe you've put some thought into, into this. I certainly put the thought into it. It's difficult to come up with concrete ideas. But uh, I mean, there are some positive things. I mean, obviously, from an environmental point of view, moves to have some level of urban agriculture and food provision. Um, I'm still, like a lot of other people, not sure how far you can go with that, but there's certainly an element of being able to grow food within cities. It takes us back to where I grew up. It was a urban environment, but there was a, two farms in the middle of it, you know. Um, and regenerative agriculture, there's these moves are very positive. I think if we're talking about the financial sustainability, I think it's about 
enabling those conversations about transparency and for farmers who are now taking a real stand um, in the recent cost of living crisis in the UK in particular to say, no, we can't pay you any more suppliers income. <laughs> you can't take any more payments from us. We have, you know, we're, we're it's as far as it can go. Um, I think the other positive conversation comes when you start looking at, well, how could, how do we actually reduce the overheads we've created in this system by having so many layers in it? You know, how so many steps between farm to fork. How do we reduce that? How do we make that tighter? And I think that does help. And I think every move towards not just fresh food, but towards um, preserved foods rather than processed foods. So, you know, canning and freezing and things are not bad. They're actually, we only survived as a human race because we could store food during the winter months. You know, we didn't survive because somebody provided a fresh vegetable shelf for us all the year round. So I think it's again, sort of those positive moves to saying, well, what's the best use of our food resources? You know, how do we store? How do we think differently about storing food? And I think there are some ideas around that. Um, you know, understanding what what's... I'm going to stick with the accounting because I know there's lots of initiatives I could talk about that Absolutely. people have done on the alternative side. But it's about... Um, finding ways of producing and more importantly distributing food that cuts down the overhead. In the end, I mean, one of the reasons the supermarkets called discounters are successful is because they have stripped out a certain amount of overhead from their operations, you know, and they're not looking for large profit, profit margins in percentage terms. I realise that a small amount of a very large amount of money is still a very large amount of money when it comes to profits. So I think there are positive moves there. I think there are steps. I think the current situation has got people talking about imports and exports. It's got them talking about where are the real costs in the system. It's got them talking about well, what constitutes nutritious food? Does it always have to be fresh or are there good ways of preserving food that are not ultra-processed um, snacks? You know, so I think there are some very positive conversations going on there. But again, they'll make some changes in the way things are costed and priced. And even small changes there could have really quite a large effect over a population of people. And um, again, if you come back to me in a few months, I might have done some of those calculations. Is <laughs> what I'm thinking about at the moment. Yeah, and I know we've talked about this previously. Um, you know, currently farmers are doing their accounting or running their operations on a mm. cost price basis, and um you know looking at even the farmer perspective is there any 
kind of accounting advice you could give a farmer? I mean, I know that they're only <laughs> able to, their hands are somewhat tied, right? But, um, yeah. and maybe we have to have another podcast to discuss um, some of your calculations, yeah. but. Yeah, I think there's um, certainly scope I've realized in the last couple of months to revisit farm accounting again, in terms of classification of costs. In practical terms, um, and most farmers I've ever spoken to are already doing this, but we have something in accounting more generally called target costing. And that essentially means understanding the cost you can get, understanding the price you can get at the farm gate, and then re-engineering your processes to make sure. So I can remember visiting somebody in New Zealand and what they were actually doing was actually adding two more tines to their harrowing equipment going across the field because then they needed to make less passes of the field and that saved a surprising amount of money and people going over to no-till and various other um, approaches to farming. So I think it's actually what my discovery, for want of a better word, was that farmers, quite a lot of farmers are actually doing this in their heads, but they would never think of calling it target costing, but it is what they're doing. But you can extend that a little bit further because you can have something called a target cost contract. Now, I've only met one or two people who've managed to make this work, but it's essentially saying that you have an agreement to be paid on a certain price and then the ability to deliver over and above or to improve the quality over a number of seasons has a bonus element to it. So working together with the person you have the contract with, you can work together to lower the costs, but increase the margins. And if you manage to do it correctly, you'll keep the prices down as well. Um, there's a big difference from doing construction where this works quite well. But I have come across one farmer in the UK who, for at least for a while, managed to do this on a, with that one of their crops um, and their grower packer they were working with. So I think it's about thinking, well, are there any more overheads? No, I'm saying this being aware that every farmer I've ever spoken to is obsessed with this anyway. Mm -hmm. And most of them have cut everything they possibly could down to the bone. And um, the other side is actually working together and resisting requests for unfair suppliers yes. payments. And I'd like to see more there. Some of the other things have been around for a while, you know, joining together to make purchases or having transports is there's not much you can do you either increase your income or you reduce your costs at the end of the day most farms i know have diversified or have some off-farm income as well but ideally we don't really want that you know they're cross-subsidizing the rest of us you know mm -hmm. they we shouldn't be cross-subsidized by farmers having overdrafts or spouses who work off-farm or bed and breakfast tourist arrangements. I mean, I'm all in favor of diversifying your farming into cheese making and 
ice cream, but you know, farmers have had to diversify and use their land in different ways. But in the end, that masks what they're not being paid for the food. Yeah. And so it's, and it's changing those conversations in the general mindset as well, getting people to know. I think there's a the other side to it, the positive side, is actually getting people to know. So there is the program on Prime TV. Um, uh, with not wanting to put too much product placement that Clarkson's farm. And it was quite interesting because obviously after all the subsidies, you know, the farm still didn't turn a profit or turn very tiny, tiny profit. And that really interested me because there's actually quite a lot of novels and books written by about or by farmers. It's something when I have a spare moment I want to pull together. But quite a lot of these autobiographical accounts are virtually about them thinking through their finances, how they're going to make the farm profitable, what it costs. It's quite interesting. It's storytelling by accounting. That's <laughs> it's fascinating. Yeah. And basically, that's the story of the farm is, um, you know, not just how you the farm and the nature on the farm. It's also about, well, this almost dramatic story are you going to run out of money? You know, um, and I think, you know, if more people understood that story, that would be, you know, you begin to get some more interesting conversations going. Yeah, I agree. And I think you, you see a more you see more and more positive traction around agriculture, um, especially in the in the last couple of months. I think there's a lot more interest in the food space um, holistically, even from average consumers. They're starting to ask not just the simple question that we saw, you know, already 10 years ago, which is, you know, is this organic or is this healthy? Right. There was this kind of big push around food quality, food health, but now even looking at, you know, um, how do these supply chains work? And I think the sustainability movement, a really great byproduct of that is people starting to ask these questions, right? Um, yeah. They're starting, there's definitely a change in, in, in the mindset, um, you know, where does my food come from? And I really loved what you said about, it gave me goosebumps, diversification at a farm level being the subsidy for cheap food right i think that really hit it home for me and i guess one positive thing about maybe agro-tourism is it will hopefully help reinforce this you know understanding in the industry um there's so much i want to still ask and unpack but maybe <laughs> let's take the last five minutes to okay talk about you know what are some of the projects you're working on at university of portsmouth um or maybe not even just projects but how can our listeners find you and your work um how can they connect with you okay well the best way is just to email me direct you can find me on the university of portsmouth webpage fairly easily um you know um, there's not many lisa jacks Although there is one other professor, Lisa Jack, who interestingly is best known for taking pictures of Barack Obama in his youth. <laughs> so <laughs> you get an interesting search if you search for our name. Um, but University of Portsmouth 
is quite interesting. I came back from a sabbatical in Canada about five or six years ago, put out a call to see who else was researching food at the university. Turns out there's about 45 people in the university researching food from some form or another. Um, but we're not, not many scientists, not many policy makers, which is what makes up most of the researchers in the country. Instead, we've got people looking at it from a business point of view, from technical technological point of view, and what might be called agri-tech, particularly in packaging. Um, we've got psychologists looking at behavior around food. We've got historians and um, literature experts looking at food in culture. Um, and we have a very long-standing and growing connection with the community in Portsmouth, which is a port city right in the south of England. One of the very few island cities in England with, with you know, was completely surrounded by water, although admittedly at the north side, there is a very narrow channel. Yes. So we have quite a lot of projects going on and we come under the umbrella of food cultures in transition or which we shorten to food city. Um, we're interested in how people and culture affect food supply chains and as well as diet. And we have this strong belief that you can't look at any of these problems without looking at the people in there. So I've talked a lot about systems and accounting because that's my speciality. But I strongly believe that accounting is about people. When I was an auditor, it was drummed into us. You can't understand the business. You can't understand the accounting unless you understand the business. And the other phrase we used to get a lot was there aren't any systems problems. There's only people problems. So we're very much a group of researchers who look at these issues um, from a people point of view. And we're very much looking at it from a place-based point of view, because if you can change the system in Portsmouth, quite frankly, I think you can change it in quite a few other places as well. It's quite a, if you like, microcosm of a lot of the problems in the food system. We've got affluence, poverty, um, fine dining, a lot of takeaways, you know, health freaks obesity problem, you name it, we've got examples of it in the city. So a lot of our research at the moment has been around food loss and waste, food psychology, culture, um, you know, alternative food systems as well. We've got people looking at, we've got a colleague very much looking at fair trade. So we're looking at it from this cultural point of view, this people point of view, for want of a better way of putting it and projects are coming through there we're also quite innovative in the sense of working on projects with companies around packaging um, new food projects marketing ai and technologies particularly applied to food safety and food fraud materials you know so we're gathering a profile for the work we do you know but um I'd like to shout out that actually food research does happen at the University of Portsmouth <laughs> is the key thing. We, we don't have any specific degrees on that, but we do have 
modules within degrees at the moment, but I would dearly love to walk to work towards. Uh, we do have two masters that we're hoping are going to come online next year around sustainability and business. Okay. And we're hoping that that will contain a food element as well. But we have links with a number of other universities as well. So, you know, we would um, certainly hope to strengthen those in the years to come. We're very pleased to hear from anybody anywhere in the world with similar interests and who may like to do a joint project. Um, it sounds like the foods, it's called, you call it the food city. Is that like yeah. a part of the campus? Well, it's a virtual party, <laughs> virtual group. Okay. <laughs> and it's um, short for food cultures in transition. It was quite a neat way of putting the whole ah. together. Well, I, I, I think, yeah, I think all listeners should probably check out um, Food City and connect yeah. with you, Lisa. Um, definitely, I think there's some amazing innovation happening um, at your university. Uh, is there any other way that, you know, maybe some words of advice, final words of advice to the audience, anyone who'd want to follow in a similar career path, um, what they can do or, or how they can even get involved with the university, um, either through a bachelor's or a master's or, or, or some sort of project? Well, um, yeah. I mean, if it, in my area, I mean, you do need some understanding of accounting, but to get involved in the food area, I mean, it's almost what you said earlier. Isn't there a phrase again from the United States about if you're in food, you're in, sorry, if you're in, if you eat food, you're in agriculture. Yeah. <laughs> so almost anything you do has a link. I think more specifically, if you're looking for an academic path, then you do need at some point to take a PhD, a doctoral, undertake doctoral studies. Certainly I have two or three students and we've probably got a fair number of students in the university who are researching the food systems, food psychology, food businesses and for their doctoral studies. And I think you're taking that path, you really do need to do. That's what helped me was doing that PhD study initially. You immerse yourself in it. You have to think about the links. Um, you get a feeling for what your contribution to that area is. So for people looking for a way in, I think probably if you want to link into academic research, then you do need to be looking at maybe first of all doing a master's, um, either from a technical point of view or from a policy point of view and there's some excellent courses across the world in this area and then of course you can come to us to do your doctoral studies <laughs> there we go there we go we're very well networked if we can't help we can point you in the direction of somebody who can but it is that i think for me it was i hadn't actually thought of doing a phd till i worked at the agricultural college as a teacher but I got so interested the only way to get into it was to do an in-depth study I started by doing an MPhil and it got upgraded to a PhD and from there that gave me the confidence to go out and do my own research in the area um, the other thing is just to network and talk to people 
and look for the opportunities because there are other routes into researching this area through you know non-governmental organizations and research organizations and even the civil service um there are a lot of activist groups as well yeah in the different areas it's an area where you will find a doorway in if it interests you well and 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 thank you for giving us an insight into your academic perspective in your academic world of um, agricultural accounting. Mm. To wrap it up, are there any final words of wisdom you could give the audience? <laughs> That's very difficult. You don't like to sort of say that um, you are, you know, your words are those of wisdom, but I think there's a way I approach my research. It's not original to me, but it's, if you like, a pragmatic approach to doing research. And it starts with, well, what are our unquestioned assumptions here? We touched on that when we talked about food should be cheap. What are the unquestioned assumptions? Start questioning those. And then start thinking, what if we did something different? But the first point is recognizing that some things we take for granted might not be fixed in stone. Yeah. I really, really love that, the unquestioned assumptions. Thank you so much, Lisa Jack, for coming and to Agri Insider today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. And thank you very much for inviting me. I've, I've enjoyed talking talking to you about this subject. This podcast has been brought to you by Tridge, the leading global intelligence and networking platform for agriculture. Visit us at www.tridge.com to find out more.